Hello and uh, welcome to episode 12 of the Making Good podcast. Um, I should just say at the start, I'm mindful that the um, the fast-moving news about um, COVID-19 might be the timing of this episode a little bit moot. Um, I certainly don't want um, it to seem inappropriate putting it out, but even more than that, uh, for Kayla's insights to get lost, um, they're, they're valuable and I think uplifting if um, if you've got the the space to um, to give them a listen right now. If you don't, um, maybe pop this on um, on your bookmarks and um, and come back to it when um, when when the the outlook's looking more um, more settled and, and predictable and there's headspace for um, for for other things. If you are listening now, um, uh, to introduce this week's guest, Kayla Enti, the founder and CEO of Brighton and Hove Energy Services Co-op. Kayla's a true pioneer. She's been at the forefront of the clean energy transition for uh, for many years now. Working with um, working with uh, small uh, small investors, local communities, um, and there's some really inspiring initiatives underway right now with um, with rural communities um, decarbonising and and same for for schools um, opening up some interest in new um, new frontiers with those projects. Uh, we talked about the political economy of energy in the UK, how the homes of the future will be powered and heated, and how the generational property divide is one of the often unremarked upon breaks upon uh, clean energy transition. We also looked at how uh, the failure of policy initiatives in the UK have gutted capacity in the private sector and talked about the economics of nuclear versus others, including heat pumps and even biomethane. I began by asking Kayla about the early days found in BESCO and what the landscape looked like back in the early noughties. Well, BESCO was founded as a cooperative in 2013 but I had been wanting to set up a similar business model for about 15 years before that. So it took me that long to get everything into place so that it could be a successful business model. And a lot of that was around the fact that in 1998, when I first had the idea, solar was about 10 times the cost of what it is now and it just was not efficient or financially interesting Um, mostly it was used for space stations and things like that and um, a couple of adventurous scientists but in 1998 i won an award i was working for a dutch energy supplier called nuon and I won award for a finance mechanism for kickstarting the development of renewable energy. And basically, that's what BESCO is all about. We are a means to facilitate the transition from fossil fuels in the energy supply. And we are completely focused on ensuring that it's as easy as possible for people to make that transition to clean energy, uh, local energy, because of uh, the finance mechanism that we have in place, um, which is basically a means of um, of paying for the systems without making any upfront cost. So uh, BESCO would finance the systems in advance for the customer by raising money in the community and paying our investors a 5% return and then we invest that money into building renewable energy and energy efficiency infrastructure. So it's a 
it's a pretty good, effective uh, business model. Um, and we have a very strong technical team because there's a lot of fear, I think, in in people of renewable technologies. It's alternative. They don't really know if they can trust it. Um, and so having a very strong technical technical team to help people overcome that fear is also an important aspect of, of what we do. So, um, so can you tell me, you've described that you started off with your, um, your award in Holland and then you, and then you came over to, um, to the, to the UK. What was the, what was the landscape like in, um, in, in the UK when you, when you first got going? What was the, I guess, quite an uphill battle to get started? Oh yeah. I, I would say that, um, and, and this is pretty common knowledge that the UK is probably around 10 years behind the Netherlands. It's, it certainly was when I was there. I, I, I'm not living in the Netherlands anymore, so I'm not sure about the advanced developments that they've made. Um, I've been now in the UK for 17 years, but um, that, that was the case. And so when I first came here, it took me a long time to get uh, the message across, to communicate the message, but also to build a network of people who understood what I was trying to do and who were willing to work with me. Um, so. One of the things that I'm really interested in in this uh, podcast series as we move through is to is to understand the the ideas that are going to become mainstream and help us out of the um the mess that the um that the, the you know that the constellation of um of ways of doing things if you like has um has has caused but i'm also really interested in what it what it's like for the pioneers you know that like that 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 sense of being an icebreaker the attrition that that um that, that you must that you must experience when you're um, when you're trying to break ground with um with with new ideas so so how did that did it did it kind of start to um, move forward with with specific projects? So you had um, you had some um, landowners or property owners that allowed you to move forward, and then built a team team to service that project. Or was it a case of putting together a willing team ready to you know create creating the capacity ready to respond to um, to um, to business as it came in? Yeah, I wish it was the latter. You know, uh, financial resources. We still struggle financially to. Um, attract investors. You know, if if you have a technology company and you're you're pretty standard technology, it's very easy to find investment. You are willing to take tremendous risk on your company, thinking that you've got some great solution that's going to make a fortune. Uh, somehow, in renewable energy, we just don't have that same attraction. There. In fact, I think we have a super winning business model. Uh, imagine investing in energy generation assets where you're sure that you're going to make a certain financial return because the sun is shining and it's generating X amount of energy every year and you've got a track record in that. And yet um, it's so difficult to attract the, the finance that we need in order to be able to grow the business. Um, in most businesses, you're, you're going to find either an angel investor or somebody who's willing to take a bit of a risk because they believe in you. Uh, we, we just haven't had that yet. So when we were starting, it was basically me uh, for the first two years of the business, um, developing projects, 
finding customers, uh, pre presenting to customers, and convincing them that it wasn't too good to be true, that this actually can happen, that your your assets, your energy generation assets can be financed up front and then paid off um, by the um, energy that's generated from them. And then you actually save money because you're paying less um, to us than you're paying to your energy supplier. Is there... Um... Is it is therein somewhere lies the reason why it's been difficult to get investors because they um, because the the model itself isn't as exploitative as voracious as um, as, as as other um, as other investment vehicles might um, might appear to be. Yeah, I, you know, Lee, that really I I think that is a major component of this because um, Thomas Piketty, who is a very famous economist. Uh, wrote a book called Capital, where he studied economic movements in different nations uh, over the centuries. And uh, one of the conclusions that he came to was that excessive returns, so if we look at the boom years of the 80s and 90s, when uh, 13 to 15% was uh, the average return and was the expected return, that is when we really started to see the deterioration of not only the environment, but society, uh, social values, all of these kinds of things. And so I think that, well, the reason why we, we only pay a 5% return to our investors because we, we don't want to deteriorate. We don't want to cause any uh, society or um, environmental deterioration. We, we want to ensure that we're not taking uh, from society, that we're actually giving. Um, and this is a different way of, of looking at economics, but it's definitely the way that we need to move forward. The um, yeah, I haven't read the Piketty book, but the idea of um, you know the rentier economy, where um, where money where money's being made from money, it was a, a it was deemed unethical in um, in 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 times gone past. Maybe it's not worth drilling down too much into the kind of the moral philosophy philosophy of this, but I do wonder in the times in which we live, in which there's a there's not a kind of a an aperture, an opening, a, a, like a breaking apart, in which the um, the possibilities for <clears throat> triple bottom line business for um for um for um uh, environmentally benign or or positive businesses to um to start to um to start to come to the fore is cr creating um creating a space in which your ex like you and, and and other um ventures like you are, are still experiencing the kind of the drag maybe the friction of not being able to um to leverage that uh, um, enough of that money that's swashing around in the other side of the economy but which is actually building a really solid base and a counterpoint is it's almost like the 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 possibility for transcending the the um the kind of the uh the the economy that's 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 caused the problem is just gestating it's forming in the um in 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 projects like yours maybe that's um maybe that seems um a little bit idealistic but do you get the sense now that there's a kind of a head of steam growing that there's that there's like a movement towards a different kind of economy i'm really hoping for that paradigm shift i think the younger generation really understands that 
very well. Um, they don't seem to be as materialistic as uh, older generations past. I think they realize that the quality of life is not determined by the amount of money that you have and that stockpiling money and goods um, doesn't doesn't bring happiness, that your happiness actually comes from your relationship with nature, with your friends um, and in your communities. And I, yeah, and I, I really do hope that that's one of my single hopes is that we do have a, a shift change. If we look at what's happening in the United States, I think that that whole focus on, on money culminating in, in uh, the election of, of a leader who was primarily elected because of his wealth, um, I, I'm hoping that all of that crumbles uh, and it gets broken down uh, and we have a huge paradigm shift in the in the way that we think about these things is the um i think that w many of us are pinning a lot of um a lot of hopes on the younger generations it makes it makes me wonder when one of the issues that confronts the uh, the young the, certainly the younger gen the generation immediately below myself and um and um and 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 others just about to enter the the job market is the um is the uh, the ability to um to to own your own um own your own homes many of them are, are paying um excessive amounts you know in terms of proportions of their um, of their income on on rents and 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 of course therefore also on bills but is there a is there a um uh, an unhelpful um in, in for the parameters of the conversation we're having an un, an an unhelpful kind of mismatch between the um, their responsibility for paying the bills but no um kind of uh, executive kind of control over the way in which those um those um the, the contracts which service those um their energy needs are, are generated we've got a class of landlords live away landlords which have um, which have got very wealthy um asset grown their asset wealth in the um in the 80s 90s and and early 2000s who are now um who are now housing many of these um many of these young people and and are insulated if you like from the um from their from the desire of their tenants to um to to, to live um with a lower impact yeah um i think that there's not sufficient protection for the tenant um, I, the law tends to lean more towards the landlord, which I, I think is a poor reflection of society. The, the, the law should exist to protect the tenant to all reasonable uh, extents. And one of the things that BESCO does to help tenants reduce their overall cost of, um, of renting is by working with landlords to provide uh, more better insulated homes so that they don't have to pay over the odds to be warm in the winter especially in brighton and hove we we have a lot of properties i'd, I'd say we have about six thousand properties and these are all uh, primarily in the private rental sector that are really not uh, fit for the winter, so to speak, and they're quite costly uh, to heat. And uh, so there's a lot of the the people who are renting are obviously the, the more disadvantaged in society, either they're younger, they're students, 
or, or they they just have never really been able to save enough money to to, to buy a home um, and and all that really needs to change there, there should be more laws uh, to, to protect people and the government has come up with uh, a law to uh, prevent renting properties that are the lowest grades, but they don't enforce that. So, yeah, they're sure there's there's not the um there's the, a decade of um, swinging cuts in the local authority means that any kind of notices that have been served uh, are, are probably not going to be followed up with nearly the same um the, the, the nearly the rigor that that that's required. And of course, it's really interesting that you mention. <clears throat> Helping to, um, to, um, to lower the, um, the energy usage of properties. That's the first and most important, um, part of the riddle, isn't it? With, um, with retrofit and with reducing, um, and with, re- with re- reducing the, you know, the, the, um, or Im- improving the housing stock and achieving, um, achieving net zero, um, carbon emissions from the operation of our housing stock is to, um, is to just reduce the amount of heat that's needed in order to, um, in order to keep a place warm by insulating, reducing drafts. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. That's why Besco, we're one of the only energy co-ops in the country that actually work on energy efficiency. And we have a partnership with Retrofit Works. Uh, right now, we're, we've rolled it out in um, around Sussex, uh, where we're helping people to retrofit their properties um, affordably, you know, um, the thing about energy efficiency is it's just never been really sexy. It's not as sexy as uh, energy generation. And so it doesn't get a lot of attention. But in fact, you're absolutely right, Lee, that the first thing we should be doing is is saving um, energy. And uh, there was a considerable right um, a couple of years ago when uh, when uh, People, when there was funding for loft insulation, um, you saw a considerable decline in uh, energy consumption in the, in the nation uh, because of that. All the efforts that people were making to insulate their lofts, and and now all of those low hanging fruit that that's all been plucked, and we're left with um, the harder to treat properties, the older properties. And um, it's there's just not a lot of profit in it for companies, so they're not doing it. Uh, but it really has to be done, and we're looking at ways to do that with Retrofit Works on a large scale. Could you tell me a bit more about Retrofit Works? I'm not sure if I've come across that um, that organisation. Yeah, um, they're a group that are based in London, and. They're also a cooperative. They're very like-minded in terms of governance. And uh, what they're doing is they've, they've developed a software where they can analyze the uh, uh, SAP data, which is the energy performance data that gets compiled by um, people that are the, the domestic energy assessors. And uh, they can compile that for any re- any region and come up with statistics on how these regions how the properties in these regions are performing and then put together plans for retrofitting those properties and so we're drilling down and looking at Brighton and Hove 
and all the properties in the city and um, taking a um, measured approach to retrofitting and improving the thermal efficiency of those properties. And so, um, how does that how does that process work? Um, you um, is it a case of knocking on doors, getting in, in uh, getting inside, and like you know, poking around in actual properties with 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 actual clients? Is it um... Um, actually? Uh, we've just been advertising pretty much on social media, and I think it's a lot around Besco's reputation that people have come to trust us. And so they're contacting us to to get the energy survey done, um, so that they can get a whole house report, see see what they can do on their house, and then engage Retrofit Works to to carry that out. Um, all of their works are done through a retrofit, what's called a retrofit coordinator, who who's been trained at a very high skill level to to do building works. Uh, and improvements in a home, and that person oversees the entire process to ensure that there's quality control throughout. So people don't have Absolutely. to worry about, you know, uh, builders not not doing the right thing because they've got somebody looking over their shoulder the whole yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. I know I've um, I've spoken with um with um, people at the um uh, in, in involved in the retrofit um coordinator um programs which are training people up from this and um and also with our um, a mutual acquaintance Alex Alex Hunt who is a who is a, a retrofit coordinator and it strikes me that this is really interesting um a, a really interesting but maybe um un un often unremarked upon um um intervention in the um in the marketplace with the potential to really change the direction of um of of travel for this because you know if we if we, if as we know 85% of the um of the properties that need to be net zero um already exist they're not all going to be fancy new properties can't be bulldozed will be the places that are lived in you need someone that's going to be that's going to be able to take a um a realistic view both of of what can be done in any given property but also of the budget of the um of the of the homeowner right and and what that means for the sequence of works you don't want to be doing something in one room if it's going to mean um ending up um <clears throat> ripping out um rip, being ripped out later on when when work's done um in an in another part of the um sequence so it's this is a this is an a, a profoundly important um um role um for 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 people to perform and there are there are literally millions of the properties that these people need to be going into do you get a sense that they that this i, I hear it's admirable um how you're working in brighton do you get feel the sense that that this is happening at um, at sufficient speed and scale at the moment. No, I mean it's that's been famous. I would say for the last, I've been hearing this for the last five years that uh, we have to. I don't know what the statistics are, but it's something incredible. Like we have to retrofit five properties a day in order to um, reach our target on what we need to do to upgrade all the properties. Um, in the country. Uh, so, you know, uh, the thing is, is that a lot of villages and cities are writing neighborhood plans, but these neighborhood plans don't address the existing uh, built environment. They only talk about energy efficiency in new developments. So it's been an area that people 
do not tackle. They, they're not taking it on in the way that it needs to be done. And I, I think that that's really a pity. Obviously, that's why we're doing it here. And we're really hoping that it shows an example for other places to, to do the same, other community energy groups, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to put my shoulder to that wheel with you and help you, um, and, and, and help you spread the word. Do you get the sense that <clears throat> you described that there was a, um, a huge sea change um, since the time you got involved with um, with photovoltaic energy in the um, in the in the in the cost base of um, of of that technology. We could almost say that solar has turned out from um, unlikely beginnings at the point at which you were um, you were describing your entry to be almost like a a silver bullet or as close to a panacea as it's possible to think of. Right. With the, um, when you look at the, um, the energy, the actual energy that can be captured, I don't want to overstate that because I know that it's, <clears throat> there's always going to be a palette of options, but <coughs> excuse me, when we get into talking about, um, about improving the building stock retrofit first, is there, are there technologies coming through which feel like they might be a similar um a similar panacea for um for or, or are we just really in the um we're really in a in a in a messy um uh drawn out process of um of matching as many different options to as many different properties as possible no i think that we've got some winners um heat pumps are a real winner and once you make your house thermally efficient so that you are not losing a lot of heat through drafts through your windows doors and uh roof and floor walls then you know you can look at heat heat pumps as being an alternative to to gas heat i i wouldn't say that it it's really interesting economically right now if you are living in the center of brighton for example and you have gas heating uh it's very unlikely unless you've got uh extra money and you really want to do the right thing it's quite unlikely that you're going to put an air source heat pump in your home just because it runs on electricity and even though the heat pump um for in general for every kilowatt hour that it takes from the grid, it will create three to four kilowatt hours of heat. So that pretty much matches the relationship between gas prices and electricity prices. It's just that the install cost of a heat pump is considerably higher than a gas boiler. But as the technology evolves and more get um, installed, that cost will start to come down and we're really going to see heat pumps with solar panels, battery storage, um, and probably, uh, you know, an electric car charging point as being pretty much standard kit in, in most homes. There's um, battery storage is, um, is something that I'd like to, um, to spend a little bit of time on with you because there's a, there's a few things technically that I'd like to understand, but, but before we, just uh, sidle across to um to storage can we just take a second because i've heard about pumps before and indeed on some projects that i've worked on myself i've seen either ground source or um i've seen ground source coils being laid and i've heard talk about air source can you just explain for those who um who may be not familiar with the technicalities including myself how like the basics the back of the envelope how they how they work what the um what the physics is of the uh, the system 
Yeah. Well, um, it's a lot like a uh, air conditioning system, but uh, turned the other way around. So using producing heat instead of um, cool air, and it, basically with a ground source heat heat pump. Um, you would either drill a borehole straight down into the ground and pull that water up at between 8 and 12 degrees. And then it would come into your house and go through a heating interface unit where it gets topped up to between 35 and 45 degrees um, and then can run through a wet system in your home. Um, sometimes you would want to replace your radiators with low temperature radiators because the thing about fossil fuels that a lot of people don't understand is that it burns at a very, very high temperature. Um, so it's very inefficient, in fact, uh, using fossil fuels. Uh, and we've been really very wasteful for for a long time uh, with our, our resources because of the power of fossil fuels. And we really need to uh, look at it in a different way uh, and look at what what nature can provide without uh, destruction, destruction of, uh, of itself, and, and use uh, technologies like heat pump, which on an air source heat pump, you would take the uh, temperature differential uh, from the the air temperature, and and through the same principle, you would um, heat it up through a, a a heating unit using electricity in a very very efficient way. You know, I I would say some of the heat pumps we're looking at now produce five kilowatt hours of heat. For every kilowatt hour of electricity used, so they're they're very efficient, um, and, and they they really are uh, the best way forward in terms of providing heat, as long as the the property is well insulated. If the property is not well insulated, then you have the situation where the heat pump is working very very hard and very inefficiently to provide a sufficient level of heat. In that property, so we don't recommend we don't recommend that. Just to so just to be clear, because the um, the the the, uh, the water is already at a certain temperature, because of it, it's been exposed to um, passive either to the the temperature of the air or to the um, to the temperature of water underground. It's raised it up a certain number. So you're so you're you're get you're giving a, an energy free head start on that warming up process, and then there's an, an efficient motor or or whatever that drives um, that, that 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 does that takes over for that last leg to warm it up to the temperature that you need it to be when you're in the house. That's correct. Yeah. Simple and really elegant. So, some heat, heat pumps um, in the past uh, made quite quite a bit of noise, but technology has advanced in the last couple of years, uh, so the noises uh, are very low. Um, unfortunately, we we've tried to put heat pumps in to replace oil boilers at, at a couple of sites in in very conservative areas of the country, and they just they just won't have it. Um, which is very unfortunate because we're not going to be able to make the transition that we need if we have people who refuse to understand the technology, you know, 
It was. I was talking to um, <clears throat> Anastasia Kucherova, one of the the architects behind the um, the Bosco Verticale, and we were talking about the um, the um, the opportunities and um, and frictions around um, around doing away with concrete for um, for for buildings and using um, using timber frame instead. And she described a similar um, a similar thing that it's um, that it's it's largely cultural and psychological in um, in certain areas. The um, that that they that that inhibits it's both the um the pull um from um from clients from developers but also inhibits the push from um from planners and um and and policy makers who um who not only are they um inhibited presumably by uh, by by well-funded lobby groups but also just by a general resistance to um to things which are um to things which are new is there a, is there a role for um, for government and um, funding where it, should should this just be left to um, to um, to the private sector to finance through um, through angel investors or or, or or business cases do you think well there's there's definitely a role for government uh, and uh, unfortunately uh, they yeah it, it I really struggle with with government because government it, by its nature is extremely inefficient uh, and unfortunately they don't they don't recognize that um, and the the reason why the Green Deal failed is because the government should have never taken such a, a primary role in in the generation uh, of a of a business what is basically a, a commercial exercise um, I think that the government would do uh, a very good job to encourage uh, what it wants to achieve. So in the case of net zero, to ensure that the investments that it's making in taxpayers' money goes towards the achievement of what taxpayers um, want, where they want to get, which is basically uh, net zero, um, and then invest accordingly but that doesn't happen unfortunately because they're so influenced by lobbyists uh, as we know and so the money gets put in uh, in and invested in very inefficient ways governments are always changing uh, departments and responsibilities and they're always shifting roles uh, and so all all of that inefficiency means that they're constantly recreating the wheel um, and and really uh, what we need to stop doing it is is exactly that we need one plan and we need to pursue that with a, with a vision just like any and, company would do right and 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 in terms of this um this this structure of delivery for for net zero do you feel like the expertise and the um um across across the various related industries is is there now or is would it or would it be a standing start well we've lost a lot of expertise because of the failure of the green deal and there were a lot of companies that uh, invested in ramping up uh, staffing and 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 supplies to provide a market that never really appeared, and so uh, for example, in in Brighton, when I first started Besco in 2013, we probably had 10 or 11 different insulation companies. 
Now we don't have any. You have to go to Stenning and to Southampton in order to be able to find somebody who's going to insulate your property. And has there been has there been consolidation in those markets? Now, do these of these companies like snaffled up all of the smaller ones, or is it is it just the last that you know? And are they now covering a larger area that was covered before by a patchwork of smaller ones, or do we just have fewer providers and it's you know longer waiting times, um, more yeah, expensive we just, prices? We just have fewer providers. I mean, uh, there there were many many companies that that went out of business, and the same with solar. Solar installers, they have suffered exactly the same. Um, in fact, one of the solar installers that we were working with has decided to close their renewable energy division um, because of the change in subsidies uh, for for solar. Is this the reduction in the um, in the feed-in tariff, the steady, the, the you know, the declining? Um... Yeah, exactly. So because it's not necessarily uh that that the stopping the subsidies the the feed-in tariff uh, made the market go away um it but what it what it did do is it put on hold a lot of projects that were in the pipeline and because every company needs a steady flow of income the the companies just can't ride that tide yeah, the fixed burn fixed burn rate that gets um that starts getting stretched. We we saw things happening like this with Brexit last year as well. People just pausing and waiting to see what happened before projects were given the given the green light. Last year was chaotic in terms of the stop start its stop start nature. So I can only imagine what this what's been going on in the energy market, like a long, slow, drawn out um, version of that. I imagine. Yeah, I mean, we have one installer who can do residential properties in the area in the Greater Brighton area. Um, it's just, and and this is all due to government uncertainty. Um, Vesco's strategy has always been to try and make sure that we're not dependent on government at all, um, which is a very sad situation when you think about how much income the government gets from from the taxpayer um, and how inefficiently that money is spent. Uh, it's a crime, really, but. Unfortunately, government officials are not held accountable for the way they spend our money. Do the um other? This feels to me very much like when we talk about um about the poli <clears throat> whether you take this at face value or or not. There is a dialogue, a narrative around the opportunities afforded um, uh, after we um, after the UK leaves the European Union to to have a have a pivot, become a world leader in um, you know in in um, in um, in transitioning towards net zero, and also to um, to rediscover um, an ability to manufacture to make. Is there? Is that, do you get the sense that there's an emerging um, joined any kind of emerging emerging joined up thinking around say um, technical colleges um, picking up the slack with this kind of work developing a course in um, in um, domestic insulation you know is there or, or, or at the very least even an encouraging encouraging a dialogue between um, um, industry experts and um and tertiary education experts secondary education experts that can um that can start to um signpost young people towards careers which are going to be like really making a difference to to the to our national um to our national battle yeah i mean i i do agree i think that that is one 
of the advantages of Brexit is if we did really come together uh, to to develop a leadership role in net zero. I think that we we could be leaders, and I have a lot of hope uh, for that. Um, I know that Retrofit Works is working with local colleges uh, to to develop programs uh, to train young people um, in the trades. And I, I also know uh, that that Alex takes on, Alex Hunt from Bright Green Homes, takes on quite a few apprentices and trains them. And, and it's really up to uh, these individual businesses to to take on on these young people, train them and, and teach them uh, the various trades when, when they come out of school. But I do agree that it it is a huge opportunity and 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 one that could uh, create a truly clean energy economy um, and set an example for the rest of the world because the likes of countries like Russia who are completely exploiting all of their oil reserves and um, and and actually creating a real mess looking at uh, the melting of the Arctic Circle as being a, an opportunity in terms of shipping lanes. I mean, all of that, that that really needs to, to change. And the only way we can change it is by setting an example, setting a better example. And uh, I think we're perfectly positioned to do that. That's um, that that's an op optimistic note um, to um, to. Um well not to leave things on but certainly to i think to bracket that that conversation around the state of the um around the state of the the market could i take a second to um to find out a little bit more about um what besco has been doing in the years in the years since it set up what the um some of your signature projects i know that there was um there's a there's an enormous one uh, that's worth um that's worth mentioning down in um down on the down on the coast um down at the port um but i'm i'm sure that's not the only one can we hear a little bit more about the um the kinds of projects the size the scale yeah sure um well part of our new strategy is decarbonization of villages that are off the gas grid so we have um, many villages, certainly in Wealden District Council, uh, where people are still burning oil in order to stay warm. And so our, our strategy is to work within these villages uh, to decarbonize them and to get them on uh, renewable, affordable renewable heat. Um, and so the, the first example of that is um, going to be the village of Furl, where we're looking at installing a, um, a 3.2 megawatt solar farm to power uh, the heat pumps uh, that we will put in the village to replace the oil heating uh, systems. Uh, this project will save about 650 tons of carbon emissions a year never mind the particulate um, emissions from burning oil um, and, and the sulfates and the noxious uh, fumes. So it will go a significant way in reducing air pollution in, in villages. And, you know, a lot of villages, for example, Goudhurst, where you have uh, traffic, uh, excessive amounts of traffic going through the villages, you're going to have a lot of air pollution from those diesel vehicles. And then in the winter, burning um, oil 
uh, to stay warm, your pollution levels are going to be uh, not ideal. Just put it that way. Uh, for for respiratory illnesses, especially with older people and older people, there are a lot of people older people who live in villages. So so that's one of the big projects that we're working on. But also we've got a a project where we're replacing an oil boiler at um, at the Montessori Play School in Framfield. Uh, they burn about 20,000 liters of oil every winter to, to keep wow. the school warm. And we'll be replacing that with um, a ground source heat pump. Um, we're putting in, um, we're finishing the underfloor heating because they have some underfloor heating already. And we're just going to finish that. Um, for them and uh, a solar it's going to be a solar corridor so the corridor is going to have solar panels on on the roof of it uh, but uh, it will be glass so that we get the advantages of passive solar and uh, solar electricity generation for to, to power the heat pump so they already have about uh, 27 kilowatts uh, that we put on a couple of years ago to, and that we put in an air source heat pump, underfloor heating, um, and solar on the roof of their nursery. So now the, the kids can, um, play the, the infant children in the nursery can play on the floor. It's a heated floor and it's all, all renewable heat. Um, so it's really a wonderful message about, uh, what we can do when we have uh, people who really understand the power of this technology and and want to take it on. I um that 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 feeling is remarkable on the on the canal boat that I renovated. I've um I we got some um some solar panels put on quite early on and in very uh, in a very small way instead of using a um a diesel generator charging up all the batteries on the power tools with um with solar panels is just this it's it 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 gives you it gives you a glow it gives you um, a, a warm feeling of um, of contributing i can only imagine then as well if there's um if there's uh is there any price left at all for um for selling on that electricity back into the grid or does it literally all go um it goes into um it goes into storage to be used we think we think that they're using all of the electricity but we're not sure because we didn't install an export meter you have to have an export meter on the site in order to be able to understand how much they're sending off to the grid um and in the days of the feed-in tariff it really wasn't necessary to add that extra cost on um because you would just pay the deemed um tariff for for the export but going forward we're going to understand a lot more about what we're exporting um because you're right lee that that's the future is really um energy sharing energy trading um and using battery storage to make our uh, our grid a lot more efficient i'd like now this might be the time to come back to that question about um about storage what is the everyone <clears throat> Everyone who is sympathetic to um, to clean energy, renewable energy, is aware of um, an uncle, a workmate, uh, um, you know, a, a family member, or, or what have you. They know someone who's very sceptical and always defaults to the yeah, but what when? What about when the sun's not shining or the or the wind's not blowing? Just for the just for in very basic um, very basic terms, where are we with um, with storing? Um, 
with uh with you know with with storing um renewable energy are we where where we need to be how far down that line um would you would you say we are to solving that conundrum well i i think that the uk is actually a leader in um, battery storage we have some very prominent uh companies um, that have developed fairly efficient and highly performing batteries um, we installed one of them um, in a household in Hollingdean, and uh, we're monitoring that very closely to see how well the battery is performing so that we can use it as a case study uh, for other properties and uh, I, you know battery storage is going to be more and more important um, for the project in Furl, we're looking at battery storage on, on a larger scale so that we can provide flexibility to the grid. Um, for a lot of community energy groups, this could be a source of uh, income uh, because when there's a, a lot of demand on the grid, you can release some of the power from, from your batteries to ensure uh, consistency of, of power on the grid and that's really where battery storage is going to come in on a very high level i mean the whole argument for nuclear power uh being a consistent source of energy goes right through the roof um when you talk about battery storage because i, I know that there are about 40 gigawatts of applications right now for the national grid to for companies that want to install their batteries um, onto the national grid. Well, if you look at Hinkley C, um, Hinkley C is only going to be four gigawatts. So um, you don't need to spend whatever the latest price is. I think it was 25 billion on um, Hinkley C. Um, you, you, you can just invest in our renewable energy future and I think that it would provide a much better return on taxpayers' money. What's the insight with um, with your with the um, proclivity towards nuclear? Now, I will say that I read somewhere um, an observation which I think is entirely fair that um, nuclear power is still um, essentially 1950s, 1960s designs. It's never had the iterations of um, of the technology that other. You know, the, the example I heard was, you know, the microchip. The microchip has, had, has, microchip has had literally millions of iterations, you know, that's why it's, um, it's incredibly efficient. And we're now talking about quantum computing. Nuclear powers had maybe a few. What, why does it continue to be, um, mentioned as, um, in, in arguments that you read online and in, you know, in learned circles about whether or whether it should or shouldn't be, part of the um of the of the energy mix what's your what's your take on why it's still considered to be um right up there because it's about power um and it's about power at scale um and that's what politicians like they like to know that they can put in a two gigawatt uh plant and it's going to provide a lot of power um and they like um very single solutions uh, for for a problem. Um, the EPR, um, so the uh, a v, the one that uh, is going to be installed at Hinkley C, um, the Aviva uh, EPR nuclear technology, 
that that's actually not working anywhere in the world yet. So it's very interesting the fact that the government is willing to take a risk on unproven technology in the case of a, a 25 billion pound investment. But have you ever tried to get anything through the government on anything that's not proven? They're usually extremely risk averse. Um, and, it, and it's all around uh, this idea of, of power. But I also think that it is related to the mil military industrial complex where we want to have control over uh, nuclear. Um, the University of Sussex did a really interesting paper on the relationship between uh, civil nuclear program and the military nuclear program, which um, makes for very interesting reading. And I, I think they're absolutely spot on. Um, in 1993, I used to work with um, uh, I used to work for Greenpeace, and and one of my colleagues um, at Greenpeace at the time uh, was a co-author of that paper. Um, so I I just think that it's nuclear is is not logical. It doesn't make any sense at all. And um, we we about. The reason, one of the reasons why the Department of Energy and Climate Change was changed to business, energy, and industrial strategy is because 90% of the budget was spent on um, maintaining our nuclear infrastructure between the transport and security and the storage um, of, of nuclear power plants. And the latest estimate is that um, the UK government has. A, a liability of about 263 billion pounds for the cleanup of our existing nuclear fleet. I mean, um, I, I think that we'll see more and more of this coming out as France dis um, starts to decommission their nuclear. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it put the country in serious financial trouble. Mm, this is it's, it's interesting. And then, so it, and uh, the complement or the flip side of of that is that there's there's a significant there's there is significantly less um uh investment in or inter interest in um energy innovation on the um on the clean side would you say way behind where it where it needs to be oh yeah way way behind um i just saw a, an investment round about um of, of the 70 million that they announced is available um for programs um Six, 60, no, uh, 50 million of it was for hydrogen, which is not, hydrogen has been around for a long time and is still not proven and not economical. Um, and then 20, 000, 20 million for, for renewables. So renewables always, it never gets the investment that it really needs, unfortunately. That's um that yeah that's interesting. I did see one um one innovation recently where they were calling out for um for support or opportunities. Have you come across an Italian company called Energy Vault? No. Right. So I'm going to share a link to this. It seemed like I, there may be issues with it. There may be not. This may be the future. I don't know. But the gist was basically you <clears throat> you move into a 
let's say a former um, uh, nuclear power station or a, um, or a coal mine or what have you, there's um, a stranded asset of um, of some kind, and there's there's all of the building uh, buildings, the um, the fabric of the um, of the um, of the installation of the structure that was there, that all gets repurposed into blocks, um, and then um, and then. Uh, uh, robotic arms, cranes, if you like, um, are programmed to lift those blocks um, into place in a tower. So it forms a tower, and they're powered as they're lifting them up by uh, by renewables, so wind or solar, probably presumably um, a mix of options. And then when the grid uh, needs more power, the um, and apparently there's a split second reaction time. Those same cranes then drop them really fast on their cables down to the ground, thereby driving um, uh, turbines. And so you basically you're storing um, you're storing kinetic power by lifting it when you've got enough energy, um, and then releasing it when um, when there isn't. To my mind, it seemed like an incredibly elegant solution. I nearly it stopped me in my tracks when I um, when I saw that. I'll have to send you a link so you can review it, and I'd be really welcome your um, welcome your your thoughts. If it's good, I'll try and get them on the podcast to talk about it some more. Um, the thing about technology is um, it's it's a wonderful thing, and I, I really support all all new developments. But the biggest hurdle that we have with new technologies is making them economically interesting for the consumer. You know, we, we, we have to have technologies that are affordable as well. Um, and this is where a lot of them break down. Because it takes a lot too long, too long to, um, to, to make that, that kind of downward curve into the, um, Just because yeah. we, we, we yeah. can't, we can't get the, um, we can't get them to, to the economics to work. Uh, you know, for example, the Swansea Tidal uh, Lagoon, that, w- that was a fantastic idea. And in fact, uh, the technology is very good and the economics were pretty good as well because in the first couple of years, it would have raised energy costs um, because the, the cost of, of buying the electricity generated by the Tidal Lagoon would have been higher. But o- over 30 years it was consistently declining so that in year 30, it was probably about 50% lower than it was in the first year. Um, and, and those kinds of technologies are, are very exciting, uh, and yet they don't get... Um, the, that Swansea Tidal Lagoon was, as you know, rejected by government, saying that it was unaffordable. And it's really a, a question of, um, of, of accounting fee where those, um, where the expenditure, um, or the, the increments of expenditure fall and how palatable that is politically. Exactly. Because the government could have funded, they could have subsidized the, the higher cost in the beginning and then taken it over time so that as the price declined, they could have got their investment back. But, but they were, weren't interested in supporting the Swansea Tidal Lagoon because they've put all their money into the development of Hinkley. Are we talking about a, um, whether it's, um, whether it's fear of a drop off in power and an assumption, um, that the, um, that nuclear is, is currently more reliable, um, or, or, you know, or worse, it's, um, it's a question of lobbying or even worse, it's a desire to just offload, um, offload contracts to, um, you know, on fixed on fixed kind of um, PPI um, 
um, uh, PFI, I beg your pardon, private finance, um, like the Labour Party did, to um, whether it be to the French government, uh, Chinese um, providers, what have you, whether it's any of those um, suite of options that explains why we're... Um... I don't know what promises were made to the Chinese government in order to be able to secure a 35% investment from them in, in Hinckley. You know, they they're obviously have a huge nuclear power construction program over in China, and they're going to be building the same EPR reactors that um, is the technology at, at Hinkley. Um, and I guess they're using Hinkley in order to gain the knowledge that they need in order to, to be able to do that. I, I'm not really sure. You never know, do you? You don't know what the actual truth is. And I would guess that it's probably a combination of all those things. Hmm. Um, so, um, I noticed on um, on your website just as a slight um, a slight a slight tangent. Um, uh, you're working with um, with food waste and um, and closing energy loops, replacing um, replacing natural gas. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I've been trying to develop this plant for for quite a while, and uh, uh, unfortunately, we we haven't been able to um, secure any land in, in order to be able to create uh, the anaerobic digestion plant. And um, we, we were going to use it to, um, the gas to, to provide heating for a nearby community. But I think that we might change that model now and uh, use it um, to provide petrol for, for cars um, as we transition from fossil fuels um, in transport to to electric, uh, that could be uh, a really great uh, use uh, of the um, of the gas. Uh, so so we're in kind of a, a transition period right now of how we're going to what we're going to do with gas. So um, that raises a, um, a, a, or maybe perhaps it raises a question for me that I wonder if you could answer. I've all, I've wondered about um, biomethane, how using that, applying that is um, is um, environmentally benign or a lot less um, um, impactful when we know that um, methane um, is um, is a greenhouse gas, you know, like an extreme green, greenhouse gas, eighty times more impactful than, um, than than carbon dioxide. What's the chemical process that um, or the you know the process that goes the the processing that happens in order to um to to moderate the um the, the impact of the methane yeah it's all contained uh so the the methane doesn't escape uh, except in the case of an emergency where um there's a considerable amount of pressure in the system and then you've got to release some of that methane and you do that through flaring um but that doesn't happen very often. I see. Okay, so it's um, it, it, and is this? I, w I was listening to a country file um, report recently where um, where farmers were being encouraged to um, to capture capture methane from their um, from their silage. This is all pretty mu pretty much established technology by the sound of it. Oh, definitely. Um, I don't know if you knew about Crouchlands plant. Um, there was a plant near Billingshurst called Crouchlands. And they had an extremely sophisticated method of creating biomethane gas 
um, from cow dung. It, it was a pretty amazing process, uh, and it cost, I think, about $25 million to set up the plant. Uh, and then, unfortunately, because they never got the buy-in from residents in the community, the community managed to get the plant closed, which was pretty incredible. Um, that was a very good lesson for us at BESCO um, to know that you have got to work with the people in the community to make sure that they're all on board and they're all happy with what you're doing before you make any investment. Otherwise, you, it's too much risk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I. I see. Well, that's that's generally um um a good a good spirit to approach most endeavors. I would say. So we're coming towards the end of um end of the end of the time. I don't want to take up too much more of your um of, of your evening. What's um where next for um, where next for Besco? What's um what's in the pipeline, as it were? Ah. Uh, well, we're installing three um solar arrays on three schools this month. As we speak, they're they're going up, um, and it's very exciting because I think collectively they're saving about ten thousand pounds a year uh, on on their energy bills from from our solar arrays uh, and offsetting um, uh, obviously offsetting carbon emissions. Uh, and then we're we've got another four schools in the pipeline, and those schools are all post feed-in tariff. So. That is extremely exciting that we're able to make these projects work without the feed-in tariff, uh, which means that there is a clear pathway for the future of solar electricity. Um, and we're really looking at supplementing local energy production with um, solar and, and probably with battery storage. So, for example, in Brighton, we want to have a lot of electric charging points in this city, uh, but the grid is not right now designed to be able to handle those. And so what we need to do is to set up a lot of uh, local energy generation um, where we can help manage the grid uh, and manage the demand that's going to come in from, from the electric car uh, infrastructure. And uh, so I, I think that all of these um, there's also the possibility of energy sharing. So we put solar panels on top of a, a building with maybe 10 flats in it and, and share that electricity amongst all the people living in the flats uh, so they can get cheaper electricity. And all of these things are, are, are coming up uh, very soon. It's um it, it's really interesting to see. The, the schools, I imagine... Um, Schools seem to me like an obvious case for uh, for generating solar because they they tend to be overwhelmingly um, um, in in use um, you know occupied during during the day right during daylight day daylight hours so the ratio of of what needs to be what can be used directly versus what needs to be stored must be um, must be moderated I would imagine in in a school is that correct Yeah that's right um, the only issue is sometimes if they're not open in the summer. Uh, we can lose quite a bit of opportunity there. But most schools are, are open in the summer now, so um, we, we don't have that problem. I got it. I got it. I understand. And so um, 
Then the other thing that, um, that, that, uh, that, that strikes me, um, from what you just said was, um, about, um, the growing EV market driving, um, helping to, um, to drive, um, a deepening and enriching of the network of, um, of, of generation in, in areas to support the, um, to support the charging points. I mean, that's, that's the dream, surely. Did, was it good? Was it? something that was received well was it good news um from that perspective the recent um claim that we're going to see only um evs from um from uh 2032 onwards yeah i mean i i i'm i'm very excited about it naturally and uh i think that it's going to take a lot of partnerships a lot of companies working together uh to to realize this and uh Cooperation is is really the the thing that we have to focus now. Um, the the in a in a climate of climate emergency, we really do need to go transition from um, a market of competition to a market of cooperation. And, and and as soon as we realize that, I think the the, the floodgates will open in terms of um, the, the the level and the pace of change that we can accomplish. Uh, so in Brighton, we're very fortunate because we've got BESCO, um, the Energy Services Cooperative, and we also have Brighton Energy Cooperative, um, who are who are also working very hard on, on the energy transition. So uh, between the two of us, I think that we're going to be able to make a lot of change in, in the city in terms of local, locally controlled and, and managed and community-owned generation. It's it's fantastic to know that it's becoming more u- ubiquitous. What's your sense of um, of coverage elsewhere outside of you know real pioneer places like um, like Brighton? It, it is um, is community generation now something that's um, accessible to to most people across the UK UK further afield? Well, there are two hundred and sixty three community energy groups across the country. Um, and, and I think there's a dearth of community energy groups in Kent. Um, so we're thinking about getting more involved in, in Kent, but we're also involved with, um, community energy South. And I know that you, um, interviewed Ali, uh, Penderid, who's the chairman of community energy South, uh, just recently. Um, and maybe he would have focused more on his riding sunbeams project, um, with the rails, but, uh, Community Energy South is an organization that we work closely with to help promote uh, the development um, of community energy groups across uh, the Southeast. And, and so it, we're really dedicated to making sure that communities that want energy groups um, to, to help them develop those. Well, um, I, yeah, like I said earlier, I'm really happy to help put my um, shoulder to the wheel and, and help in any in any small way by linking up people so we'll we'll provide contact details um for you and for um, for community energy south and is there a um, like a national organization that, um, that those 263 um groups affiliate to that we could um, connect to as well or is it still quite disparate no no it's called community energy england uh and they're based in sheffield uh and they're like the overarching uh group for community energy groups we all feed into them and every year they they produce a report called the state of the sector 
um, and that is always produced in June. Um, and so this year's report should be very, very interesting um, because uh, we're at the end of the feed-in tariff. It should be very interesting to see uh, how much renewable energy generation is community-owned uh, and developed uh, this year. And to help plot, plot paths from, um, from, from, from that, that point on. Kayla, um, thank you so much for taking some time. I just before we go, I'd like, um, to ask you if I may some, um, some wrap up questions that I ask all my, um, all my guests, um, just to help, um, help spread the word about good stuff that's, um, that's out there. I learn, I learn a hell of a lot through this little section. So, um, if I may, um, begin, um, um, a book or a podcast that you think everyone should know. I just finished reading, um, Naomi Klein's uh, latest book, um, I think it's called Burning Up, um, and I, I thought it was good. I didn't think it was as good as um, uh, This Changes Everything. I don't know. This Changes Everything was a, a game changer for me, really, uh, talking about climate change and how we really do need to each person needs to be responsible and understand their carbon footprint and and take action um and howard johns also wrote a, a very interesting book about community energy uh howard johns is one of the founding directors of ovesco which is a community energy group based in lewis and uh, his book was very encouraging because it talked about what community energy groups are doing around the world and, and what is possible um, in, in community energy. So uh, I, I would say those two, two books were really game-changing books for me. I'll, um, I'll, I'll certainly, um, I'll certainly link to, um, to both of those. I know Howard's a, a great speaker. I'll, um, I'd be interested to see, um, to see, um, to see his writing. The, um, the second question then, um, a, a person or a social media channel account that you, um, that you think people would get value from? I'm really a big fan of Satish Kumar, um, who, uh, he used to be the editor of, um, resurgence uh, magazine resurgence and ecologist and i love that magazine because it always gives a very positive spin on on life and your relationship with nature and what's going on in the world um for me they're all very like-minded um um articles and and i really enjoy that magazine actually so yeah and he has um he has a university that you can study at at the Dartington Estate, um, where you can take courses. And uh, I, I've never taken a course, but I can imagine that it would be very, very interesting. One for the um, for that um, that mythical future when we've got some time on our hands. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. as it is, I'm a complete workaholic and. Uh, you know, it's not very healthy and I'm trying to wind down from that. But it's very hard to wind down when you're feeling the pressure of a climate emergency and you know you can do something about it. Yeah, well, well, and, and can do and, and, and are doing. It's really lovely to hear you, um, hear you talk about the, um, the, you know, the, the battles, the victories and the, um, the, the journey that you've been on. I, I, I wonder if we could close out. It's 
been a very long journey. Yeah, right. Huh? Um, can we just close out by um, by and and hopefully this will be the decompress that we um, that we need at the end of that conversation. Um, uh, your favourite place to immerse yourself in nature and why? Oh, okay. Without a doubt, it's um, going up to Furl Beacon and going down into Alfriston and then walking um, through Alfriston out to uh, to the sea at um, at um, Cookmere Harbour. I I absolutely I think it's my favorite place. It just brings a lot of peace. Um, and I really love it. I feel so fortunate to be so close to to South Downs National Park. It's just a gem. Yeah, we uh, we we we're really blessed with that and there's some of the some of the most epic views um I would say anywhere in the um in the south of England. It's um it's beautiful. Um Kayla, we'll leave it there. I've um I've taken up um an hour and fifteen minutes or so of your um of your evening. I'm incredibly grateful for you um for you sharing. Um, Thank you, Lee. Yeah. Thank you for asking me to share because I, I love opportunities like this. It's great.